Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, August 6th. Arden Zwelling here with Ben Nicholson-Smith. Ben, what's going on, man? Not much. It's nice to have baseball back again after another hiatus, at least for the Blue Jays. I mean, what a weird, weird season this is becoming. And I don't know if we're in asterisk territory or I'm not trying to even answer the question of whether this season has competitive integrity until it's all done and probably we won't know even after this for you know for for months or or weeks whether this season is uh legit but it's it's entertaining i mean i'm definitely enjoying following it all i'll answer that question no no it does not have competitive integrity then not even a little bit. That's out the window. As soon as you start just changing rules and changing the lengths of games willy-nilly in the midst of a season, when you change the playoff format like 45 minutes before the season begins, when you have two teams that have had COVID-19 outbreaks, one of which the Marlins are like back playing now, and uh, they've actually been winning, so this kind of undercuts my argument here, but the, the roster that they are fielding is hilarious is just guys who would not be in the major leagues under normal circumstances anybody who ends up on waivers the marlins are like immediately claiming just to get anybody in uniform and get anybody out on the field so you have to think eventually things are going to turn for them and they aren't going to just keep winning if they do it's like the greatest story in the history of sports but you have to think at some point Their opponents are going to have quite an advantage. The teams that play the Marlins are going to be facing quite a different level of competition than other teams. Not to mention the fact several teams might not play 60 games. For some of those teams, some of those games might only be seven innings long. No, competitive integrity is gone. There's none of it. You're telling me that you don't believe in this group of waiver wire scrubs that the Marlins are picking up and that th- somehow this five in one season is is not enough to convince you they're the class of the National League East. I'm telling you that John Birdie is their two hole hitter. That's what I'm telling you. Yeah, it's crazy. It's you know, it is obviously a totally different kind of season. I, I guess what I mean is clearly the <laughs> this season is a year like none other, but I wonder Like if the Yankees win the World Series this year or the Dodgers or the Twins, I still think that those teams are are going to celebrate. I still think that they're going to have a ring ceremony next year. Now, if the White Sox win or if the Mets win, you know, it might be a little bit of a different conversation. You know, clearly there's a point at which the season becomes totally ridiculous and I don't think we're there, but it is going to be dependent on how many teams have outbreaks like the ones we've seen in Miami and now in St. Louis. Yeah, nobody wants to hear us talk about COVID all day, which is essentially what, you know, the podcast has been for a while, but like let me just say that MLB is unequivocally contributing to the spread of the COVID-19 virus and nobody cares and that's fine. There's no opposition to it. They're going to keep playing. Everyone's fine with people getting sick and MLB actually contributing to, uh, you know, a pandemic that we're supposed to be trying to mitigate and to quell at this point. But I do think it has to be said that you have had multiple outbreaks across MLB that hasn't stopped anything. So at this point you would, you know, you would need a situation where it was like two, three, four teams simultaneously coming down with huge outbreaks and then they would shut this thing down. But like, you're right. Like the Marlins are not a major league club right now. Like they are not of the standard and of the quality. I understand that the fact that they've won a couple games runs counter to what I'm saying there. 
But like, look, if you're within the NL East or the AL East because they play the NL East this year, like you're pretty happy that you have to play them instead of being in one of the two central divisions or two West divisions and having to play a a team that actually has major leaguers on it. Exactly. And I I think you're right to say, you know, big picture, this is contributing to the spread of of COVID-19. And it's hard to imagine as much as I would love to believe that the Marlins and the Cardinals are the last teams that are going to deal with these outbreaks. That is tough to imagine when you have all the travel that continues to happen. And, you know, frankly, you look at the the way some of these players are, are handling this within their own dugouts or even on the field, you still see a lot of spitting. You still, until recently, and this might be shifting as the league hardens some of its protocols and starts to really enforce them differently, but you still see or we're seeing recently coaches using the masks as chin straps. And so, you know, at that point, you start to wonder if this is how they're handling it between the lines. What's happening when they're at their team hotel, when there aren't cameras trained on their every move? I don't know. And again, this goes beyond baseball. It's obviously a societal issue within Canada and the U.S., but particularly acute within the U.S., And so here we are really going day by day. I mean, that's the cliche in baseball. and It's always been the cliche. We're just going one day at a time. But now you really have to go one day at a time because you do not know. (laughs) Like You don't even know if you can play the game on the schedule tomorrow. And it's a scary reality to be in. But I think that's where we're at with Major League Baseball. I will say I feel like I've seen the mask usage increased a little bit in the last couple of days, just definitely with the Blue Jays, but even just in watching some other games around the league and watching some of the West Coast games late at night, like I am seeing more mask wearing in the dugout than I saw earlier on. So I do wonder if, you know, a number of players have kind of been spooked into taking things a little bit more seriously here. But like, yeah, at the same time, I mean, these players, they share a clubhouse together for so many hours of the day. You really just need one vector to bring the the virus into a clubhouse and and you get a Marlin situation because everybody is just hanging out and they're breathing the same air. You know, you saw, you know, some players, you know, complaining that like during rainouts, they're sitting in those clubhouses for, you know, hours at a time, not really doing anything, like just kind of passing germs back and forth between one another, as we all do all day in our lives. The clubhouse itself, I think, is just like, is just a perfect kind of breeding ground for for this type of thing to be transmitted between humans. But look, let's talk about the Blue Jays, as we must. They obviously were caught up in the fallout from the, the Marlins outbreak and didn't play at all on the weekend, didn't play against Philadelphia Phillies, ended up hanging out in Washington and, you know, starters through side sessions, relievers got up on the mound, hitters tried to keep the rhythm at the plate. It's interesting talking to Bo Bichette yesterday about it after the game and him saying like, he's kind of going through spring training mode now. He's kind of learning things about where he's at and where his timing is now during regular season games that count in the standings just because there wasn't that benefit of spring training. And now there hasn't been that benefit of constant day-to-day plate appearances and that daily churn and and that feedback that you get in order to find your groove as a hitter. Randall Grichuk, who just returned from a, a back injury and then obviously not playing over the weekend, said it felt like opening day on Tuesday when he finally was back in uh, the Blue Jays lineup. So I don't know if you can contribute all of Toronto's offensive struggles to this point to just that, you know, obviously it's something that every team is going through and every player is going through. And we've seen plenty of teams that have still been able to, you know, hit the ball hard and, and put in play and draw walks and get on base and, and score plenty of runs. But something 
is undercutting the the Blue Jays offense right now because this is a club that to this point has been one of the most anemic offensively on the young season. And you know what? It seems to me that offense around the league has been pretty low so far. You look at some of the some of the numbers league-wide, but even relative to the league as a whole, the Blue Jays only have two hitters who have an OPS plus above 100. You've got Teoscar Hernandez, of course, who's been great, and he's got four home runs. That's exactly what the Blue Jays were hoping to see from Teoscar after his strong finish last year. At home to the Yankees. Teoscar Hernandez hits it a long way to right center, and it's going to go! Just moved up to the leadoff spot about 10 minutes ago, and he takes Sanchez out to the opposite field. And then you've got Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who's got a 739 OPS, which in this offensive climate, that's actually well above league average. So good for him. So you have two hitters who are above league average. Everybody else who's getting regular at-bats in this team is below league average, and in some cases, way below. You've got guys like Brandon Drury and Rowdy Telez who are doing absolutely nothing at the plate. Kevin Biggio got off to that great start. He hasn't come together, you know, and, and put it together with with the bat um, to this point. And of course, it's it's early, but at the same time, in some cases, you're not seeing great plate approach. Biggio, of course, an exception to that, but a guy like Vlad, who's, whose plate approach continues to be questionable at times, and the results ultimately are what this team is going to be judged by, and they have not been there to this point. Yeah, I mean, is it early in this short season? Is there ever early, right? It's a, the whole, the entire season's a, a small sample, but so look, the Blue Jays played nine games to this point. We actually don't know if they're going to make up those Phillies games or not. Like maybe they'll sneak in some doubleheaders down the line. Maybe they won't. Maybe this team only plays 57 games this season. If you only play 57 games this season, and the Blue Jays have played nine to this point, that's 15% of your season. That's not nothing, you know? And even if you get to a full 60 games, I mean, you're still talking about like right around that amount with these nine games. So look, it's not necessarily a, a small sample. And we're going to see like all kinds of weird stat lines at the end of this year. And like every player on their baseball reference page or the fan page is going to have this weird 2020 season with some rate stats that probably stand out from their career norms just because they didn't have enough runway to, you know, play to like what their actual potential or what their actual ability is. But it's still contributing to wins and losses, you know, and we're still going to look at the results and the success of, of this team, the, the same way, no matter how many games are played, because look, you got a bigger opportunity to reach the postseason this year. So every win is that much more crucial, that much more integral. And right now, with the quality of pitching that the Blue Jays have been receiving, they have been leaving some wins on the table, and that could come back to bite them down the line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at this group offensively, and they have not yet had a single game where they've really been able to just create a huge amount of distance. I mean, I'm thinking back to that opening game against Atlanta, where the Atlanta offense built a really big lead early, and they were able to to continually add to that and have a 10-1 cushion. That is the kind of game where you can break in your rookie pitchers, you can have you know your Sean Yamaguchi's go out there, and you can bank a win in the process. So, you know, the Blue Jays, great. They get a chance to use Yamaguchi, but it's in a losing effort. They just have not had a single game this year where they've scored more than six runs as we record this. And the vast majority of their games have been far less than that. I mean, four times they've scored two or fewer runs. You're just not going to win a lot of games like that. 
And it does stand out to me, Ben, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, that Randall Grichuk leads this team in on-base percentage. You know, that like noted OBP king, Randall Grichuk, who has the best OBP on this team. I mean, he is one of... So look, if you put aside Travis Shaw, who only has eight plate appearances on the season, and Derek Fisher, who only has 15 and is now on the 10-day IL, there are only three Blue Jays who have an OBP above 300. Grichuk, Danny Jansen, and Teoscar Hernandez, also not an OBP machine. So the the players that you were expecting to reach base for this club and to draw walks and and to you know just kind of be on base when hopefully you you know Rowdy Tellez does run into one or Brandon Drury does run into one or, or whoever, those guys just aren't just aren't on base. And so that's why you've seen so many solo shots for the Blue Jays this year. I mean, you know, you got guys like Teoscar's got four bombs. Biggio's got a couple. I mean, you know, we've seen Lourdes go deep and, you know, Vladdy hit one, obviously, and Jansen. But I mean, these are all solo shots. Like these aren't crooked number home runs because the Blue Jays just aren't getting on base. You look at the walk totals. Bo Bichette is your leadoff hitter. He doesn't have a walk yet this season and that's obviously like a pretty aggressive dude at the plate and a guy who's not afraid to swing at the first pitch but like that's also a guy that you would love to have a walk or two mixed in you look at you know vladimir guerrero jr only two walks on the season you look at his minor league walk totals you expect him to be reaching base via base on balls quite a bit more often than he has been like it is just kind of you know striking to me that the guys who have really kind of led the charge in terms of on base are Grichuk and Hernandez who throughout their careers haven't been those guys at all yeah that's right and and so you look at this group and there's more potential here than what we're seeing obviously I mean you've got guys like Vlad and Bichette and Biggio who aren't hitting and we expect that they will hit we expect that this will turn around and so The question becomes, can they do it soon? Because the Blue Jays don't have the luxury of a ton of time in this season. They need those results to come pretty quickly because the month or so that you might allow for a player to come out of a slump in a normal season gets you halfway through the year. So it is a tricky situation. I'm sure the Blue Jays are eagerly awaiting the moment that this kind of turns. And it does have to come from this group because trades i think are going to be difficult this year uh, you know we've already seen some minor trades but i just don't get the sense that we're going to see a really robust trade market and even if there is one i doubt the blue jays are going to be out there getting a huge bat so i think it has to come internally at a time that there's no minor league season so it's not as though jordan groshans has 350 plate appearances at double a and he's crushing it it really does have to come from this group Absolutely has to come internally. Like even look at the hitters that are at the alternate training site right now. Like you've got your catching depth in Caleb Joseph, Riley Adams and Alejandro Kirk catching depth. Those aren't guys who are coming up to be, you know, big hitters for you. You mentioned Jordan Groshans not coming up to this team this year. Austin Martin not coming up to this team this year. I mean, could a Kevin Smith be a prospect that breaks through or a Josh Palacios? Maybe we see them or a Forrest Wall. Maybe we see them at the major league level this year, but you certainly aren't relying that on them to crush major league pitching right away like you still don't know what they're going to be beyond them you've got kind of like the journeyman like veteran minor leaguers like Andy Burns and Ruben Tejada and Patrick Kivlihan those guys aren't gonna make an impact on your lineup and then the one guy I haven't mentioned is Jonathan Davis who is like pretty far down the outfield depth chart and a guy who I would say is more of a defensive contributor at this point in his career than than an offensive one 
So there, you don't have like somebody who you're going to bring up who's going to add a bunch of thump to this lineup unless, Ben, unless the Blue Jays went outside of the organization and went outside to get a little bit of Yasiel Puig in their lives. Three-run home run. Yasiel Puig has just made it 5-1 to one here in the sixth. And brought him in to add some thump to this lineup. You know, throughout... The preseason, um, throughout the offseason, throughout like I don't know, like the last like twelve to like eighteen months, where like adding Yasuel Puig has been like a bit of a like pet topic for Blue Jays fans. I've like resisted it, and I've thought like, look, they're fine. Like they've you know, you want to give Teoscar Hernandez a bunch of reps, and like he's not a clear upgrade over anybody who's out there, and I don't think he really like adds to this lineup right now. I, and now I think he does. And now I think he actually is someone who you should look into bringing in to add some thump to his lineup because it's not going to come from within. And he is going to be better for you than a Jonathan Davis, probably certainly than an Anthony Alford. Who knows about Derek Fisher, but he's hurt right now. I think you could find plate appearances for Yasiel Puig, whether it's at designated hitter, whether it's Teoscar Hernandez or, or Randall Gritschuk getting off of their feet, whether it's just as like a bench bat. And just a guy that Charlie Montoyo can call on late in games to come in and possibly hit one out of the park. I think the SL Puig all of a sudden actually makes a lot of sense for this club. I don't know where he's at with the whole COVID thing. You know, obviously Atlanta thought that he was going to help them. And, you know, they've obviously got outfielders like they were going to have to try to fit him in as well. I think that he could be a benefit to this club if it's going to continue hitting the way it has to uh, to this point. I mean, you look at, at some of the players on the roster, and I think Yasiel Puig is better than some of the players on this Blue Jays roster. So that's a conversation worth having, for sure. I mean, you look at, right now, they have Billy McKinney on. And look at Billy McKinney's baseball reference page and look at Yasiel Puig's. And one of them has a lot more home runs and a lot better OPS, and it's Yasiel Puig. So I think when you're looking even ahead at projected stats, I, I think Puig clearly is going to clear the, the expectations that you would have for somebody like Billy McKinney. And you can option McKinney, so you're not giving up on your organizational depth. You can option a guy like Brandon Drury if you want to talk about right-handed bats who, who would be contributing. I think the one thing that might get in the way of this idea, because I, I would guess the Blue Jays have talked about this themselves, and, and I don't think it's a crazy thought at all, but if you're Puig, you might want to go to a place where you have guaranteed at-bats. You might want to go to a place where you are likely to end up on a contender not a fringe contender, not a, you know, maybe we'll make it team, but a team like Atlanta that has basic assurances of, of at least making it to the playoffs in that first round. But if that option was available to him, do you not think that he would have taken it by this point? If the fact that he's still a free agent, does that speak to the fact that perhaps that option is not available to him and perhaps his best option is uh, playing his season in Buffalo? Well, hey, it's a, honestly a conversation worth having, right? And and I don't think at this point in the season that he's going to get some sort of huge deal, right? You're talking about a one-year deal, obviously. So do you prorate a $8 million or $10 million salary? Does that get it done? I mean, I think that it would make the Blue Jays better. It would give them a legit right-handed bat off the bench or in the lineup for Charlie Montoyo. And so that's an interesting possibility. I would think that one drawback of it or one thing that the Blue Jays would not be thrilled about would be the personality that they are you know introducing into their clubhouse right now like I don't know Yasiel Puig I've never covered him I've never I've never been lucky enough (laughs) fortunate enough to cover a team that has Yasiel Puig on it but like I can tell you that there is a reputation for the big personality 
that he brings. And so that, I, that is something that I think the Blue Jays would weigh. But that is also something that is not my problem and that I don't care about. And that a big personality in your clubhouse is actually good for me as a journalist and as a writer, because now I get Yasiel Puig interviews and now I get Yasiel Puig quotes. And now I get to actually watch all the amazing stuff that he does on the field when he is like, there's like a shallow fly ball to right field and the runner on second and the dude like kind of mocks tagging up and Puig guns it to third as hard as he can and is like, you know, (laughs) staring at the guy at second as like, how dare you? You know, now I get to see him in the batter's box, you know, with the emotion and just wearing his heart on his sleeve during plate appearances. Now I get to see him running the bases like a bad man and making base running errors and running into outs and, you know, trying to, you know, tag up from third on those same shallow fly balls to the outfield that nobody should be running on. I love that stuff. I want to see that stuff. It would make the the Blue Jays so much more aesthetically appealing to me as a product to watch, so much more entertaining, and it just might make them a better offensive club as well because we are dealing with a player who has had well above a 100 OPS plus. Well, I shouldn't say well above, but a 108 OPS plus last year with Cleveland over 49 games, 101 for the season, 120 OPS plus in 2018, 119 in 2017. I just think that that it makes a whole great big deal of sense if you're willing to put aside the potential clubhouse dynamic that would almost certainly be inserted here. Yeah, and I think at some point you have to obviously give room to the young players and say, hey, this is your space. And I think that's part of the reason that guys like Josh Donaldson were traded when they were. I mean, they wanted the young players like a Danny Jansen at the time to have the chance to establish this as their own clubhouse. And and obviously, Kevin Biggio and Bo Bichette have since arrived and Vlad Jr., Nate Pearson, they want this to be their room. But I also, my sense is, and again, I've never covered Puig either, but my sense is yeah, he's going to have these moments where he's a bit out there, but it, it doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to be, you know, bringing the whole team down. I don't, I don't think he's a clubhouse cancer. He's just a, maybe a bit of a quirky guy who can be tone deaf to what's happening around him. So, all right, you deal with that. Not everyone has to be as dialed in in the same way that, you know, let's say a, a Kevin Biggio is for argument's sake. So that's fine. I think Puig, even if he's not a star, and I don't think he's a star player anymore in the way that he was when he burst onto the scene with the Dodgers seven or eight years ago, but he's still a good player. And there's room for good players on teams that are having <laughs> trouble hitting like the Toronto Blue Jays. The shame for the Blue Jays with uh, the, the offense being what it's been to this point is that there's been some really good pitching there. And like you really can like put a few more swings, you know, like a couple balls go over the fence and like this Blue Jays record looks a lot better than it does right now because the pitching has been so solid and like kind of the the weak link to this point had actually, you know, been ironically Hunjin Ryu, like the one guy who you thought you didn't have to worry about, like the one guy who was brought in as a marquee free agent, as a guy who's won an ERA title in the NL is like one of the, you know, best starters in baseball objectively I had kind of a rough first couple outings, you know, tough fastball command. His first time out, couldn't really locate the way he wanted to. His second time out, like his velo was down and just kind of looked kind of weird out there. Like, like he was going through some stuff and the Nationals had like just a great approach against him. Like stayed away from his, his heaters like the entire game and, and got to the soft stuff and found some that was on the plate. Like 
just executed a, a great approach offensively against him. So, you know, going into his third outing, uh, which came Wednesday in, in Atlanta, like, I, I don't know that there was concern. But there was a little bit of like, hey, like, you, you got to be Hunjin Ryu at some point. Like, you got to be yourself. You know, that's what we're paying you $20 million prorated to do. And also, like, you look at it being his third start of the year. Well, that's like 25% of his season if he makes 12 starts. So like it's it's somewhat of a significant sample at that point in the context of this 60 game season. So for all those reasons and more, Ben, the Blue Jays had to be quite relieved that the Hunjin Ryu that showed up on Wednesday was like peak Hunjin Ryu prime. Hunjin Ryu, like 21 swinging strikes through five innings. Hunjin Ryu, it was as dominant a pitching performance as we've seen from a Toronto Blue Jay for some time. Margo is in the hole here, and he has the pitch. Check swing at the fastball. It's right there for strike three called. Seven punch-outs tonight for Hinjun Ryu. Back into the wine, Charlie Culberson. Back-to-back strikeouts by Hinjun Ryu. Well, he's got it working tonight. It was a great performance by Ryu. It's funny, you have Pearson and Ryu in that rotation now it really does start to look more respectable. And the results, big picture for this pitching staff, have been really good. I mean, the Jays should be really pleased with where their pitching is at overall. And Ryu, of course, a big part of that. I think the biggest thing for him, of course, is being healthy. And so he is healthy through three starts. That's a great start. And then beyond that, you want to see results. And you want to see him getting the results in a way that is sustainable, much like with Pearson, but of course, in a very different way. You want to see the ingredients that lead to sustained success and in the case of Ryu we saw his velocity tick up in that start against Atlanta and in addition to that as you mentioned Arden we saw him throw that change up and we saw him get incredible results with it and so that to me is the biggest takeaway is just seeing all right a little bit more separation of velocity between the fastball and the off-speed stuff and then to see him locate that change up to right-handed hitters of course he's going to see a lot of right-handed hitters as a left-handed pitcher and yet he has this weapon to neutralize them, which is that changeup on the outside corner at the knees or even below the knees. He was getting some good calls there. Danny Jansen, uh, you know, I saw this, this one gif of Jansen kind of messing up a frame, but let's let's give Jansen some credit. He actually has been good at stealing those strikes for Ryu, for other Blue Jays pitchers. And that's what you want to see. That's the dream. When you sign Hyunjin Ryu to an $80 million deal, you're not doing it because you think he's going to somehow throw 95 you're doing it because of the deception, the way he repeats his delivery, the way he throws strikes and gets awkward swings, ill-timed swings, swings and misses. He was doing all that in his third start of the year. And so that's a great sign for the Jays and for Ryu. A couple things on that. One, you're right. The changeup was dominant, like was incredible. He threw it more than any other pitch on the night. Got 14 swinging strikes with it. There was one plate appearance to Austin Riley when Ryu like first pitch like missed with a fastball or a cutter and then just threw four consecutive changeups and three of them he got a swinging strike with and the other one was like in the dirt so to be able to throw four consecutive changeups and get three swinging strikes tells you how elite that pitch was 
on the night how effective it was and and how good it was like there's just not that many guys in the game who will go who will go four straight times with the same pitch and get three three swinging strikes with it on the Danny Jansen part like I I thought he had kind of a rough night in that on Wednesday in, in Atlanta and like this is a guy who's made like great defensive strides and I think is going to be a very good catcher in this league for a long time but like I just did not think this was his best night behind the dish which is going to happen you know you think about that cross up that you were mentioning that led to like Anthony Bass being robbed of like a strike right down the middle and like look there's no more like perfect argument for robo umps than than that occasion right there but even beyond that like there were a lot of instances in this game where Hunjin Ryu was shaking like three times four times until he got to his pitch he was having to step off hitters were stepping out of the box him and Danny Jansen to me did not look like they were on the same page during this start at all and like you know part of that is Hunjin Ryu just like having five different pitches that'll throw in any count to any quadrant of the zone so there are like just so many options there so he is just like a challenging guy to game call for I think part of it is Danny Jansen being a young catcher and still learning Hunjin Ryu like you think about the connection that Ryu had with Russell Martin in LA like that you know those two like knew each other really really well clearly very tight off the field because Hunjin Ryu lived at Russell Martin's home during the pandemic so like obviously there's a there's a connection there but I think that Russ Martin was really integral to Ryu leading the NL in ERA last year and and to his success because as we know Russell Martin one of the best game callers and defensive catchers like of his generation so you you look at you know going from that to a young catcher who is still learning him and then even just like on this night i just think that ryu just kind of had a different game plan in mind maybe than jansen or just like kind of saw things developing and flowing a little differently just want to sequence a little differently like like i don't know you know i'm not in that room and i'm not in those meetings all i know is that hunjin ryu was shaking uh, an awful lot on the mound and that as a club certainly you would prefer that your catcher was immediately knowing what your pitcher wanted to throw and on the same page as him and was allowing the pitcher to work in a much better rhythm and at a much better tempo than Hunjin Ryu was able to on Wednesday. Uh, And I agree. I agree. I think at the same time, it will just take some reps. It will just take some time for Danny Jansen and they've got four years to build that rapport. I'm sure that, you know, with the work that Jansen puts in, and his eagerness to, you know, he's always like ever since he was a minor leaguer, as I'm sure you remember, Arden, like he he's always someone who's just really prioritizing learning pitchers' repertoires, wanting to be familiar with what it is that they want to throw, how they want to operate. And in some cases, that's pretty easy. I mean, honestly, I could call a game thrown by Ken Giles or Jordan Romano. Like it's, <laughs> it's fastball slider and that's it. Like it's not that hard. It's really yeah. not. It's not rocket science. But with someone like Hyunjin Ryu, when you have those different pitches and when he is unconventional enough and he wants to keep hitters off balance, it becomes almost like an art form to try to get on the same page and be a step ahead of the hitters and be there along with Ryu. So I just think any catcher, veteran, rookie, in between, I think any catcher would take some time to build up that familiarity. Obviously, Russell Martin did it. And you look at, you know, I'm not a catcher's ERA guy by any stretch. So, you know, I don't take this the wrong way here. But you look at the results. I mean, Russell Martin, when he was behind the plate for Ryu in 2019, Ryu had a 1.52 ERA. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> and then with, you know, with some other guys, like Will Smith caught six games and the ERA was 540. So I, I think there is that time that, 
you know, honestly, a short spring training and a disrupted spring training, that might have had an impact. I'm not trying to make excuses here. And I grant you the point that that Jansen didn't have his greatest night and they were not on the same page. But if I was the Jays, I wouldn't be concerned about this knowing that Ryu is who he is and knowing that Jansen is a guy who wants to put in that work. Yeah, and we recorded like a little video off of the start, you know, earlier today, Ben, just kind of looking at some of these like circumstances, some of these situations. I thought you made a really good point. Like for you, unpredictability is everything, right? Like the hitter not being able to anticipate what he's going to throw or where he's going to throw it. So the fact that Danny Jansen couldn't anticipate what Hunchin Ryu wanted to do and that that unpredictability was affecting the catcher actually probably speaks a bit to what made Ryu so good on the night because he was just sequencing in such a varied and unpredictable fashion. Exactly. So, I mean, if, if you want to look for silver linings, like they're definitely there. And I think it'll be worth watching. You know, next time that Ryu starts... Does Montoyo stick with Jansen? Does he try to give Reese McGuire a shot? Because, I mean, that's that's a possibility too. And, and I'm sure the Blue Jays are thinking about this, but it, it'll be something to watch as the season goes on and Ryu keeps taking them out. The other really encouraging thing about Ryu was that the velocity was back where it needed to be. Like, you know, the, the, the fastball was, you know, 90, 91. The cutter, importantly, was like 86, 87, which is where you want it to be. Like in his second outing of the year against the Nationals, I think the cutter was right around like 84. And for Ryu, you know, like a guy who isn't dealing with premium velocity anyway, like every mile per hour that he kind of bleeds off of is like, you know, has that much more of an impact on his stuff because he's not blowing it by anyone. So I think he really does need that cutter to be firm, you know, and to obviously be kind of like locating it inside to set up his change up away. I thought that was really encouraging as well. Speaking of velocity, Ryan Baraki, dude, like sitting at 95, touching 96 with that fastball or, or, you know, he might describe it as a sinker and then working like a cutter off of it, at, you know, 88, 89, and in this particular outing against Atlanta on Wednesday, like never even really getting to his changeup. Like he threw it once and got like a, a great, you know, got a swing and miss with it as he will because it's his best pitch. But like Barucki's like fastball cutter combo has been so good to this point. He hasn't even needed the changeup all that often. He is looking like Andrew Miller-esque in this kind of left-handed reliever role out of the Blue Jays bullpen. It kind of sounds like Ben that's how the Blue Jays envision him contributing to this team going forward. Like it sounds like they have put a pin in Ryan Barucki as starter and he's going to be a left-handed leverage relief option for Charlie Montoyo going forward, which really adds a different dynamic to this bullpen. I like it. I like seeing this development. I mean, we heard how many times in the last couple of years, Barucki's trying to work his way back and he's had a setback. And of course, even in spring training, you know, before the entire league shut down, we're talking February and March, Baraki's progress was a little uncertain. And I'll be honest, I, I didn't assume that he would be at full health. I wasn't assuming anything from him. So I've been surprised. It's been pleasantly surprising to see him throwing so hard, just attacking the strike zone, getting results. This is great. And, and it would be great for any team. I mean, absolutely any club could use this. But, you know, the Yankees, say, have Chapman and Britton. So you've got two of the best lefty relievers. The Blue Jays have Tim Mesa, who's hurt. And then they have no one except for Barucki and Anthony Kay. Those are the only two lefties that they have in the bullpen. So it is really important as the Blue Jays navigate this season and, and face potentially some tough runs of left-handed hitters, you want to have some good options there to neutralize them, give some different looks. And, and the way Barucki is pitching, 
Charlie Montoyo now has a legit option to go to from the left side. And so, and I should add K too. I mean, he's K belongs in that discussion too. They've both been really good. Yeah. You know, you bring in Baraki to face Freddie Freeman there, obviously, because, you know, because he's lefty and like Baraki gets him to chase the cutter slider at the end of that plate appearance to, to get the strikeout. Then leaves him in against Yohan Camargo, who's a switch hitter batting from the right side and Baraki strikes him out with fastballs. So like he he has weapons to attack both sides of the platoon. Like I think he's a very real weapon in this bullpen, like a very needed one in terms of just like a lefty leverage reliever, which is like, I mean, tell me the last guy that the Blue Jays had who like filled that role since Brett Cecil really, you know, like it's, it's not something that has, you know, this, this bullpen has featured in a while and I get it. Like you, you know, the best outcome for Ryan Brucky's career is that he's a good starter and in logging innings out of your rotation. Like I know he still wants to be a starter and I'm sure the Blue Jays will kind of explore that again, going forward. Like he's still relatively young in his career and he's missed so much time due to injuries. Like you, you really want to like see if he can maximize his potential and see if you can put it all together. Like you don't want to leave, you know, development on the table. But in this 60 game season, particularly, and with some of the other long guys in that bullpen, as you mentioned, who have been stretched out, whether it's a, a K or a Hatch or a Wagusback or a Chase Anderson who's about to be added to this this club, the need for Ryan Barucki to be a starter this year is just diminished. And the upside of what he could provide you out of the bullpen, particularly with Ken Giles on the IL, so one less high leverage dude back there for Charlie Montoyo, the upside to me is just too big to ignore. Yeah, and and I think in this current season with the three batter minimum, you do have a need for left-handers or right-handers, relievers who can get guys out from either side of the plate. And you know, I'll say as kind of a quick aside here, Arden, like. I actually really like this three batter minimum rule because I think not only does it speed up the game, which of course was the main intended purpose of it, but beyond that, I'm finding that it puts a little bit of uh, a strategic advantage in the hands of the offensive manager. And I like that because it's nice to see uh, a manager have the chance once, you know, say there's a, a new pitcher on the mound, let's say he's a lefty, then the offensive manager now has a couple chances to pinch hit if he wants to. And I just, I really like that knowing that the, the pitcher is going to be out there for a few at bats. I, I think it encourages teams to carry bigger benches, which I like. It encourages a little bit of strategy and it doesn't slow the game down at all. So it, just as a quick aside there, I'm really actually liking this rule change. Yeah, no, I agree with you, particularly with bigger rosters. Like the last thing you want is, you know, the Joe Girardis of the world to be able to just like use one pitcher per batter uh, and to have all these toys in their bullpen and, and to want to like pull them out and play with all of them. So, uh, you know, absolutely like that's a benefit. And, you know, yeah, the Blue Jays bullpen, it's starting to, to take shape in an interesting way now because you know what we're seeing today uh, you know the blue jays had to cut the roster down to 28 players so you know we saw santiago espinal and jacob Wagaspak, who who were each optioned they're going to be on the taxi squad now which you know they've decreased the active roster to 28 but increased the taxi squad to five so the players get to still hang around the team and be in that you know environment be on the road with them and everything they just aren't going to be available to charlie montoyo in games so jacob Wagaspak is kind of the odd man out on the pitching side 
But when you've got Thomas Hatch pitching as well as as he has to this point, not to mention Anthony Kay, you know, from the left side who can give you some length as well. I mean, the the need for Vegas back on this roster, you know, it's not huge. And also Shuni Yamaguchi is a guy who can give you some length as well, although that's not a guy you want anywhere near leverage at this point. You saw the Blue Jays were having to wait until they had, you know, like a nine-run deficit before they put him into that game the other day. You know, I think that Shuni Yamaguchi is going to be better going forward like I certainly don't think that you know he's a sunk cost or a lost cause to this point like I you just I, to me you can't say that after only three appearances especially for a guy who's making a transition from Japan to the US the different ball and a different continent different world different way of life different hitters different style of play different level of play etc 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 like I think you've got to give him some time to to figure it out and so you when you kind of look at how this bullpen is kind of playing out here there's your sort of three longish guys who can give you some innings. And then at the back end, you've got like your Anthony Bass, Jordan Romano. I'm putting Ryan Barucki into that group now, Rafael Dolis as well. And then you've kind of got your middle leverage guys in terms of like Font and, and AJ Cole. The bullpen looks better to be now, all those things considered, than maybe it did, you know, several days ago. Bigger and better than ever before. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's definitely you know it, it works right. And and if you have a ten man bullpen, which you know I guess it's down to nine now that they option Waggis back. But yeah, you want to have some some good options there. And and let's let's give them credit, right? Like you think about Ken Giles going down and this team having so little certainty without Giles, and yet the results have been really good. So. Those pitchers are, are stepping up. They're getting results for the most part. Uh, I think after some stumbles there early, Montoyo seems to have figured out which guys he wants to go to in which spots. And he's got some good choices there. I mean, the decision even, you know, we talked about Sam Gavilio last week. And, you know, I, kind of walking that path from should they DFA him or create an IL? Of course, I forgot he had options, but they get rid of Gavilio, which is good. He did not belong on that staff, as we were saying last week. And now it's Yamaguchi who... You know, he's, he's going to stay on the staff for now, and I don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. But he's the guy that you put in when you're down by six or up by seven. That's the role for him. But pretty much everyone else, you've actually probably seen their performance trend in the right direction. They've probably gained some trust from the Blue Jays' decision makers in the last couple of weeks. And you just look at the pure stuff from guys like Hatch and Baraki and Kay. We theorized a month ago or two months ago that putting those starters into relief roles would lead to an uptick in the stuff. And now we're seeing it. The stuff is there. It's looking great. Yeah, the, the thing that concerns me with Yamaguchi is that so now he's he's faced 12 MLB batters in his brief MLB career. And he's thrown 57 pitches and he has only four swinging strikes. You need more swing and miss than that if you're going to be out of the bullpen, unless you're going to be like a, a ground ball machine. But the the thing that, you know, he has, I don't know if he's been a machine in it, but the thing that he's done a lot lately is walk. <laughs> he's walked four batters, <laughs> four of the 12 that he's faced. So like that can't be it. You know, it's got to be ground balls. It's got to be swing and miss. It's got to be getting outs. And the Blue Jays are working with him now. You know, we talked to Pete Walker on the weekend. And he said, look, like when he first came over here, we kind of kept our hands off and said, look, what you were doing in Japan is working for you. Let's let you try it here and try to figure it out here and see how see how it goes in MLB. I think that's a fair approach. Like it's hard to take a guy who had like a 9-6K per nine uh, and super low ERA over a full season in Japan last year and bring him here and be like, change everything. You know, it was working for him. So you give him the opportunity to try it here. 
clearly didn't work here for whatever reason. You could talk about the ball, you could talk about the mound, you could talk about the hitters and their approaches, you could talk about the level of play, whatever it was, didn't work. So now the Blue Jays are working with them and they're saying, all right, well, why don't we throw more of this pitch and throw it to this part of the zone? And hey, in this count, let's do this, whereas you used to do that. So now they are actually kind of trying to smooth out those edges and and you know just help him improve and help him turn around what's been a pretty disastrous introduction to Blue Jays fans. Is that going to work going forward? I don't know. I think that he deserves some some runway to try to make that work. Uh, the thing is, the Blue Jays seem to only play games that are like three two or two one. You know, it's very rare that you have like low leverage scenarios this season, which is also kind of part of the challenge with the Amaguchis. His first two appearances were bottom of the 10th inning with a runner starting on second base like it's not exactly the you know most comfortable entry point to your major league career but when you look at this pitching staff as a whole as we've kind of been alluded to I mean that is the one guy that you're like no not anywhere near leverage like not anywhere near a game that that is in in you know that is in play right now Everyone else on this 14-pitcher staff, so that's 13 of them, you feel okay with in meaningful innings. That's pretty okay, I think. I, I don't know if, you know, uh, across baseball, how many clubs you're going to find that have a pitching staff entirely of pitchers who you trust in meaningful innings. And compare that to last year's Blue Jays team, right? Like, how often did Charlie Montoyo look at his staff and say, like, literally, he would say, like, we don't have anyone else. That's why we're starting Edwin Jackson. Or I have no idea who's starting tomorrow. Or we just had to do this because that was the best guy we had. And knowing that he really didn't have his best stuff or didn't have good stuff, period. I mean, that was the reality for 162 games last year in Montoyo's rookie season as manager. And we watched it. Anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure watched it as well. It was rough. They had a bad pitching staff. And this year, it's just, it's way better, you know? And I, I don't think that they're not going to keep pitching this well. There's obviously regression coming in a lot of cases, but clearly an improved staff. And for the Jays, this is a big step and a necessary step toward respectability. We all remember opener and a guy. That's right. None of that, right? That's what you're looking for. None of that this year, Ben. No, exactly. An opener and a guy. Like that was the norm. You know, it wasn't even one day that that happened that was like, oh man, that was a crazy day. That was a crazy year where they had basically openers and guys. And of course, they lost 95 games when that's what their pitching staff consisted of. So, the last thing I want to touch on, and something we probably don't talk about enough, is the fact that the Blue Jays right now are on like day 16, maybe even day 17 of their current road trip when if you go back to like when they left Toronto for Boston and those two exhibition games so they would have left Toronto on like the 19th or 20th of July and they had those two exhibition games on the 21st and 22nd and then they opened on the 24th so they went and they had that workout in, in St. Pete on the 23rd like well, this is like two and a half weeks ago <laughs> like this is a long time ago Ben like these guys have been on the road for a long time and I know they had that little bit of like a weird layoff in in Washington where they just were able to be in one place and just have workouts and you know I'm sure their schedules weren't quite as demanding and taxing as they would be during you know if they're playing major league games throughout that weekend but actually if the Blue Jays had the option I think they would have preferred to play major league games and stayed in that rhythm and in that routine like I will be 
keeping an eye just on the fatigue level and on the energy levels towards the end of this road trip. It's, you know, they got one more game in Atlanta as we record this now. Nate Pearson's going to go Thursday night. And then you got three games in Boston. Like, I just do wonder if at some point this road trip does catch up to them because I promise you, none of these players have dealt with 2021-22 game road trips in their professional careers. Like This is very outside the realm of what anybody is accustomed to. So it is like sort of a small thing that I'm watching of just what impact this is going to have as, as they wind this thing down. That's right. I mean, even, you know, three weeks on the road can be tiring or could be tiring, even if it was a vacation, you know, in a sense, you're away from home, you're navigating some different challenges some different environments. But this isn't a vacation, they're working every day, and they're expected to to perform at their absolute peak. So yeah, I, I think we should be on the lookout for signs of fatigue. I don't know exactly when those will start to reveal themselves. But I do think it'll happen. It would be hard for it not to, even though this is a young team, there are a lot of guys in this on this club that are in their first couple seasons of Major League Baseball. And so there's an excitement level that comes with that, but just you know, physically. And, and with that, there are also some veteran guys who might be feeling the grind, even, even just a few weeks into a season that's not been an easy few weeks. And so absolutely, we should be on the lookout for what that means for this club in the next couple months. We shall see. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith. He's on Twitter at BNicholson-Smith. My name's Arden Zwelling. Our producer is Christian Ryan on Twitter at Christian Ryan NS. Thank you to him for producing. Thank you to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time on At The Letters.